Well, it seems fitting to pray for our nation. We do live in a great nation. We have so many freedoms afforded to us that so many people on the face of planet Earth simply do not have. But we do also live in a nation that is in need of our prayer. We see so many people in our nation that are so far from God. And I'd like to read Psalm 85 to help prompt our prayers this morning. Psalm 85 says, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You returned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love and give us your salvation. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embark. Truth will spring up from the earth, and righteousness will look down from heaven. Also, the Lord will provide what is good, and our land will yield its crops. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. What we need today and what we need to be praying for today in our nation is for God to send a great spiritual awakening. And we've seen this in the past, twice in our nation's history. We've had a, a first great awakening in the 1700s and then a second great awakening in the 1800s. And how we need a third great awakening to be sent on our land. But I want you to notice this. Where God sends awakening, there's always a revival within his people where God sends an awakening in the culture, there's always a revival preceding that awakening among his people, the church. Notice in verse 6, Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us our salvation. So before we pray for an awakening in our nation at large, we need to be praying for a revival within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Will you join me in prayer for those two things, a revival among God's people and then an awakening in America that changes the spiritual climate forever?
Father, I thank you for how your love and your faithfulness have been shown to all people by sending your Son to die for them on a cross to provide the offer of salvation to everyone near and far. Thank you for freedoms that you have given our nation. Thank you for blessing and plenty that you have given our nation, none of which we deserve. But Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for taking those blessings and those freedoms that you have afforded us and then using them for our sinful devices. Lord, forgive us for seeking our own glory and fame rather than your glory and fame. Now, Lord, we pray that you would revive your people so that we may rejoice in you. We, we pray, Lord, for the church that we would not return or continue in foolish ways, Lord God. Help us to lead the way in repentance of our own sin, in our own lives, in our own family, in our own community, and seek your glory, seek your righteousness, and seek your holiness. And Lord, when the church awakens and is a great city on the hill again, for all in our nation to see, I pray that you would send a third great awakening on our, on our nation where masses of people turn to Christ for salvation. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know a lot about fishing. Growing up, some guys, their dad takes some hunting and fishing. Well, my dad wasn't a hunter or a fisherman. He was a, a golfer, still is a golfer. So I grew up going golfing with my dad. But it, it seems to me that at least fishing may not be simple, but fish are simple. Um, all fish know is that they, they want something to eat. So they, they want the bait, and then they, they see the bait, and then they, they grab hold of the bait. And before they know it, they're hooked by the bait. Now, wouldn't life be so much easier if temptation were like that? If every temptation that we had came with a warning message with it, like a red alert, that if we grab onto that temptation, it's going to ruin the rest of our lives. It's going to be very damaging and harmful to us. Wouldn't life be that much easier if temptation actually looked like temptation? But that's not how temptation actually works now, is it? Temptation is very crafty. Temptation is very sneaky. It, it doesn't look like temptation. It, it looks like bait. And all we know is we, we want a certain thing and that we're after a certain thing. And then we reach out and grab that certain thing. And before you know it, we're hooked by the temptation and we're sinning and, and we're doing what is wrong. The late Warren Wearsby who was a long-time pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, once called temptation an opportunity to accomplish something good in a bad way, something outside the will of God. An opportunity to accomplish something good 
in a bad way. And he went on to explain, is wanting to pass an exam a bad thing? Of course not. But if we cheat to pass the exam, then we have sinned. The temptation to cheat becomes an opportunity to accomplish something good, passing the exam in a wrong way. Eating is not wrong, but if we consider stealing the food, then we're tempting ourselves. So many times we convince ourselves that, that what we want, want is, is not wrong, and many times what we want isn't wrong, but we're real willing to rob others or wrong others to get that good thing that we want. Therefore, we give in to temptation. It's like James 4 reminds us, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage a war within you? You desire and you don't have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You, you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. So we, we desire something, but then it becomes an inordinate desire for that thing, and we're willing to hurt others in order to give it. And all while God is saying, why don't you just ask me? You don't have because you never ask me for that. This morning, we're going back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginning, to, to look at a man who wanted to be recognized. Uh, now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, is there? To be, to be recognized for, for doing something good. But as we'll see, the desire wasn't good in this man whose name was Cain. He gave in to temptation, and he was willing even to murder his own brother in order to get that which he wanted. I invite you, if you have a copy of Scripture or a Bible app, to turn in it to Genesis chapter 4. This morning for our passage, we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a man-child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? 
Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's holy word that we've heard read this morning. God was gracious to Adam and Eve. Last week, we actually the last two weeks, we looked at the first sin and the consequences of the first sin. So now in Genesis chapter 4, we see a picture of life outside the garden, and it's not a pretty picture. But God was gracious to Adam and Eve. He gave them a son. His name was Cain. And then another son. His name was Abel. Of course, we don't have a lot of information about their lives, how they grew up, uh, where exactly they grew up. But we do know that they became, um, one became a farmer um, and the other became a shepherd. So they had two different occupations. They, they shared a common practice of public worship. After so much time, they brought an offering to the Lord. And it reads as if that, this may have been some type of regular practice uh, for them. Cain would give some of his produce from his farm, and Abel would give a sacrifice from his flock. So, so good so far. But as time went by, something started to go haywire. And it started to go haywire in the heart of Cain. And I'm sure it started out really small, maybe just with a thought. A thought comparing himself to his brother. A feeling that his brother was doing better with God than Cain was. And from that thought come feelings of, of jealousy and, and envy. And then from those feelings come anger and rage and things started to spiral out of control from there. We don't know how God communicated this to either Cain or Abel, but he did have more regard for Abel's offering than he did Cain's offering. Verse 4, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was absolutely livid about this. He was so angry, and you could tell it. His whole countenance, his disposition, 
was just unhappy and angry. He probably was going around pouting and slouching. And he wanted to be recognized. He, he, he wanted to be the best. Uh, he wanted to be the one whom God had regard for, for his offering. I mean, he had worked for this too, just like his brother Abel had. Why, why was he getting God's recognition and, and, and he wasn't? Cain wasn't. So God talks to Cain about, about this. He, he gave him a warning about this. Why are you furious and, and why do you look despondent? And I don't know exactly why this is about God, but I, I always find it so amazing because oftentimes the first thing that God says to people in the Bible comes in the form of a question. He, he, he tries to get Cain's attention. He, he tries to get Cain to, to take a look at his own heart just by asking him these questions. What question may God be asking you? Today and about what? How might God may be asking you to kind of search out your own heart? Cain didn't really have an excuse. He didn't really have an answer to God's question. And I'm sure he was in denial. I'm sure he was still searching for some type of justification about why he was feeling this and why he deserved more recognition that his brother had recognition. And by the way, we don't really know why God gave regard for Abel's offering rather than Cain's offering. The best explanation for this was, is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel approved, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man. Because God approved his gifts, and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. So it seems from that verse that the crucial difference between Cain and Abel wasn't actually in the physical offering. It was in their hearts, where Abel had a heart of worship to honor God, to love God, to trust God. It seemed like Cain had a heart full of self, where he was just focused on the externals, his own glory, his, his own praise. So in short, Cain simply had the wrong motives in this offering, and that was why God did not regard his offering. And then God began to warn Cain more intently about what was in his heart. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's God telling Cain that this is temptation. He's comparing temptation to an animal that's crouched down ready to pounce on him, but he can still shut the door on temptation. There's still an off-ramp at this point for Cain. Will he take it or will he continue to go down this path into his own sinful desires and temptation? And as you know, Cain didn't take the off-ramp. He went on down that road into sin. 
He was so envious of his brother. He so wanted the recognition that he felt like he had earned and deserved that he took an opportunity one day to take his brother out in the field to isolate him. And there in that field, he murdered his brother. And as the body of his brother lay in the field without burial, God began to speak to Cain again. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to, revive, to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So the consequences of Cain's sin were very, very serious. He would never be able to farm the ground again because the farm, the farm simply wouldn't give him produce. God was going to see to that. He would be alienated from other people. He would be alienated from God. He's called a restless wanderer from this point onward in his life. And now to this, I give you this simple thought from, from C.S. Lewis. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest, once the element of competition is gone, then pride is gone. That's what was going on in Cain's heart. He had a jealous, empty competition with his brother. He wasn't content with what God had given him. He was only concerned with having more of whatever it was than Abel did. I want you to see yourself. I want us all, including myself, to see ourselves in Cain. What started out probably as a desire for honest recognition for a good deed done led to comparison to his brother. Led to envy, led to jealousy, led to rage, led to hatching a plan, led to murder. And sometimes we think we aren't capable of doing such things. But I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where it cautions us, so if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So if you think you've got this all handled, if you think you're beyond doing something that's wrong, you better be warned lest you fall. God compared this temptation to a wild animal that was crouched down at the door of Cain's heart, just ready to pounce, ready to take over and strike. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain didn't wake up this morning, one morning, wanting to kill his brother. 
We don't, most of the time, wake up with prior plans in our heart to do something wrong. Sin and temptation is a process. He let temptation in. He cracked open the door. He let it be cracked open a little bit more and a little bit more until sin came in. And then it had him hooked. God told Cain he could have ruled over this temptation, meaning there was an off-ramp here. There was a way of escape. And God provides a way of escape, by the way, for every temptation that we face. We can make the choice of doing the right thing. It's not inevitable that we sin. Because I go back to 1 Corinthians. God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted more than we can bear. Which is a, an, an oftentimes misused verse in scripture where people will misquote that saying God won't put something on me that I can't handle. That's not what that verse is talking about. Of course, God is going to put you in circumstances that you can't handle. That's, that's part of being human, isn't it? That's kind of core to our faith, that we can't handle this, but we're going to trust in God alone who can handle this. This is talking about temptation, that verse. It's saying that with every temptation, there is a way of escape. God is faithful. He's never going to put you into a, into a temptation where it's impossible for you to do what is right. There's always a way of escape that God provides for temptation. But Cain didn't take that off-ramp. He did not shut the door on temptation. He kept giving in a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. How about you? We all deal with temptation daily. Will you let it rule over you? Will I let temptation rule over me? I'm just like you. Will you leave the door open or will you shut the door of temptation and take the route of escape? Now, with this, when we are tempted... In the moment, we cannot directly control neither our desire or our emotions. We, we can't immediately change how we're feeling in that temptation. But I tell you what, we can, in the moment, immediately change which then will indirectly change how you feel. And then continuing to do this thing will eventually change your inner desires. Now, what is it that I'm talking about that we can immediately control whenever we experience temptation? Our thoughts. In any temptation... 
The way it gets dominion over us is by way of our thoughts. If we can take control of our thoughts and refocus them on God and on his word, there is no temptation that will, that will grab hold of us. That is the way of escape, is turning to God in Christ by way of focusing our thoughts on his word. And when we focus our thoughts on his word, then our emotions are going to be changed about how we perceive any given situation or temptation. Our mind is going to be renewed. And the more that we focus on Christ, the, the, the Son of God and all of his beauty and glory, 2 Corinthians says we, we look with unveiled face at his, his glory. And in this, we're, we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. So we start to, as we look at Christ, we start to look more like Christ. And how do we fix our gaze? How do we fix our eyes on Christ? It's by way of our mind. The battle is in our mind against sin and temptation against the inward temptation that we experience, against temptation that's out there in the world, in different circumstances, and supernatural temptation that comes by way of Satan and demons. The way that we win the battle is by gaining control of our minds and focusing our minds on Christ by way of his word. I would like to commend to you just a simple process that you can use as you experience daily temptation, how you can overcome this. There are four words, four steps in this process that you do just in an instant. Again, it all happens in your mind. Put this in your cell phone, uh, jot this down, and memorize this. When you encounter temptation, the first thing you need to do is resist this. James chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee to you. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may lift us up. So the first thing that we do when we encounter temptation is we say no. And we humble ourselves before God, we, we resist that temptation through just submitting ourselves and our mind to Christ. And then the next step that we do to defeat temptation in the moment as we encounter temptation is to replace those thoughts. So first we need to say, no way. Next thing we need to do is say yes to God. And we need to fill ourselves up with the word of God. So take, for example, um, you're being really tempted to just, to just throw in the towel because you're so beat up with anxiety and, and worry. Well, you can think of 
of Philippians, I believe chapter 4, cast all of your anxiety on Christ. Trust in Him. Turn to Him. You start to fill up your mind with truth. And as you turn that anxiety over to Christ with thanksgiving, as Philippians chapter 4 says, then God's going to give you a, a peace which transcends all understanding. And it's going to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So as you encounter temptation daily, no matter what that temptation may be, first you resist it, then you replace that lie with, or that temptation with truth in your mind. And then the third step is you're going to begin to pray. doesn't have to be a long prayer, but you can just say, even as you're out and about during the day, you can be doing something else and you encounter some temptation, but you can breathe a quick prayer, God, help me. Help me not to give in to this. Help me to be faithful to you. Or maybe it is a much longer time of prayer where you're just pouring your heart out to God and asking him for his aid and strength to overcome this temptation. And maybe part of that prayer also is confession, is, is admitting, God, I've already kind of gone down the road and forgive me. I, I need you to help me to get back where I need to be. Will you cleanse me of this sin and will you write my attitude and write my thoughts about this? So we're going to, as we experience temptation, we're going to resist, we're going we're gonna to replace and then we're going to pray, and then last, we're going to praise God. We're going to say, thank you, God, for what you're going to do to help me overcome this temptation in my life, or thank you for already helping me beat this temptation in my life. We're going to give him all the credit and him all the glory, and if you're willing to take hold of truth like that in your mind, guaranteed by the word of God, the sword of the spirit, you will overcome temptation in your life. Now, I can't finish this morning without mentioning something very powerful from this passage here in Genesis chapter 4. Have you noticed how Abel is silent throughout this whole passage? Cain, we hear him talking to God. In fact, there's more about him in general than Abel, not only in our passage, but for the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 4. We hear a lot from Cain audibly, but we don't hear anything from Abel. Abel is, is silent throughout this. We have no recorded communication from him, but he still speaks. He speaks in Genesis chapter 4 through his blood. After Abel was murdered, God told Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And maybe, just maybe, you feel a cry in your conscience today. Maybe you have a sin in your heart like that. 
daily you feel the weight in your soul and the agony of what you've done wrong. You feel dirty, but you simply cannot get clean. The injustice of whatever wrong that you've done in the past is crying out to God. And you hear it. You hear it in your conscience and you can't shake it. That's what it was like for Cain. He was a murderer. He was running. He was a restless wanderer. Is there a wrong that you're running from? Is there something that's broken inside of you that you just can't seem to fix or forget? Something that you cannot escape from your past that just keeps haunting you? Well, I've got good news for you. Your wrong speaks and it cries out, but the blood of Jesus still speaks even louder. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us this verbatim. I, I find this just so awesome. How the blood of Abel cried out to God for vengeance against what Cain had done wrong. is injustice. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us for all who come to Christ for grace and forgiveness, they will receive it because the blood of Christ speaks a better word for us, those who come to him by faith, than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ cries out to God on our behalf for our covering, for our forgiveness, for our acquittal, for our peace between us and God. So that finally, by the blood of Christ shed for us on a cross, we may fully know peace. In our life, the voice of our conscience can be settled from that point forward. We can have a sense of forgiveness once and for all. Is that you this morning? Do you need that grace and that forgiveness? Well, the blood of Christ is there. Because he lived a sinless life. Because he died for you as your substitute. Because he rose from the grave, accomplishing what you and I simply could not accomplish. To give you new and eternal life. There's peace by his blood. Do you want that peace today? Do you need that peace today? And it's only through that peace that you're going to begin to walk in a new relationship with Christ. It's only through that peace that you'll be able to defeat temptation as you experience it in your life. So before you need to consider a battle plan against temptation in your life, 
you need to start with Christ. You need to make sure that you've got things right with him. Because he's the only way of escape. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, your word is so beautiful. Lord, fix it to our hearts. Help us to want Christ more and more, more than we do right now. Help us to long for him. Help us to love him. Help us to worship him. Help our lives to be a living sacrifice where we're dying daily for him. Lord, let someone here who who does not know his peace to receive him and receive peace. Do something powerful in us and and through us that, that we can't do for ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Will you stand? And if you need that peace, you come. I'd love to share more about Christ.